Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Keep Our Rights podcast. I'm Andrew Frederick, and with me today is Rafael, host of the State of Venezuela podcast. Rafael seeks to reveal the truth about Venezuela and has the only active English language podcast dedicated to current affairs in Venezuela. So today I'm going to ask Rafael a few very brief questions about the current state of affairs in Venezuela. So Rafael, could you briefly describe yourself and what the mission of your podcast is? Sure. So uh, first of all, Andrew, I want to thank you again for having me. Uh, I think it's really I think it's really, really important what you're doing, uh, especially as this generation has less and less of an understanding of the reality of the ideology that's being propagated by some fringe groups, specifically on the left. And that's part of what I'm doing with my podcast. Um, It doesn't it's not the whole picture. before I get to that, I guess I'll just explain who I am and how I ended up getting to record recording my podcast. Um, so as you can imagine, I myself am Venezuelan, um, although you might not be able to judge uh, as much from my accent. Uh, my family is originally from Maracaibo, which is the second largest city in Venezuela, which is second largest after the capital city of Caracas. But I grew up here in the United States, in Texas, to be exact. Okay. My, my background is in political science and international relations. Uh, I did my bachelor's and my master's both in Texas. Last year, I actually graduated uh, from a master's program in global affairs from Rice University. And my concentration was in both international security and international political economy. Although I am not an economist, I can put you in the right direction for that. Um, I look more in a macro sense. And I think a lot of it was... um, a lot of it really stemmed from me trying to understand firsthand what was going on in my country. Um, I would go on a regular basis. I would say, man, like at least three times a year to Venezuela. Um, we still have family over there. Um, most of the family that I had, of course, has since left because of just the unlivable conditions on the ground. But um, it's important for your listeners to understand, first and foremost, that this is not something that happened overnight. This is the process of degradation that has gone on over the past 10 to 20 years. So I've seen firsthand and secondhand to some degree the degradation of our institutions and the collapse of our economy in real time. So having my family members tell me certain stories, which we will definitely get into throughout this uh, podcast, just made me want to understand why is this going on? You know, this is. This is going on in our hemisphere. It's going on largely uninterrupted. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that a lot of people could not understand the different forces at work um, because it's not just socialism, although um, it absolutely plays a role specifically in the economic collapse and really in the psychological conditioning of some of the, the Venezuelans that still live there, unfortunately. But um, – Really, part of the reason that I want to do this podcast is because everything sort of went uh, full throttle last year, as you know. Um, Venezuela became ground zero for international news when there was an effort to try and oust uh, the current dictator, Nicolas Maduro, Mm -hmm. through the interim president, Juan Guaido, which I will do my very best to try to explain to your listeners sort of in an American context why he is the interim president and Nicolas Maduro is not the president. The guy's a dictator who is – Long, long overdue in um, leaving our presidential palace, Miraflores. Miraflores is like our White House. But anyways, Mm -hmm. a lot of people were asking me because I understood that I was Venezuelan and that I could 
try to explain in a manner that's more palatable why this is going on and what are the factors that are involved. And I figured, you know what? I think the best way to do this would be to try and create an outlet through which to explain to non-Venezuelans why all of this is going on. Because the truth is that there's no one single cause, and this honestly would take a, a course in and of itself or a podcast series. And I figured, you know what, <laughs> I don't really plan to be a professor anytime soon, but I did some radio work when I was at Rice. Um, I was a DJ for our student radio. Uh, I played a little oh, nice. bit of hip hop, <laughs> electronic music. Yeah, music is a big passion of mine. Nice. And so I figured, you know what, I might as well use some of that radio work and that expertise that I developed over time to um, to create a media platform of my own. I know that most people, unfortunately, as our attention spans grow shorter, are not going to sit and read a 20-page dissertation. Well, a dissertation is probably going to be like 40 pages, but they're not going to read a dissertation on why Venezuela got to the way it did in that uh, span of time because it does take a while to read all those pages. But they will sit down and listen to a 20-minute podcast, as you know, doing your own podcast. You know, people... If they're cleaning the house, if they're driving on their way to work, to school, whatever the case may be, they'll sit down and they'll listen. So I figured, you know what? This is the next best step. And so last month or no, it was in June, I decided to uh, to make that leap and I launched the State of Venezuela podcast. And nice. I'm, I'm really, really happy that I have uh, gotten a lot of warm reception since then because – the truth of the matter, Andrew, is that Venezuela is one of those issues that thankfully has bipartisan support. I think most most sensible, sane people understand that this is a dictatorship that we are uh, that we are fighting against, and the right, restoration right. of democracy it, it goes beyond uh, just calling out the um, the economic factors of its collapse. Although that's part of my mission as well, I think that it's extremely important that people understand that this is an administration or regime that once promised socialism or death saying basically that venezuela needed to become socialist in order to become a prosperous nation and that capitalism would only lead to its collapse and we are living proof living proof that really the opposite is the case right yeah and that's that's just so important for for our our young generation in america to understand uh, what socialism does to countries um, and how it eventually turns into a dictatorship, like what happened in Venezuela. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I really respect what you're doing, uh, starting a podcast, um, just really just sharing the truth. I think that's that's fantastic what you're doing, uh, which brings me to the next question I have for you. Um, and you kind of already kind of already talked about this, but could you explain how Venez Venezuela's downfall occurred and and really what factors led up to its decline? You, you kind of already touched on this, but I just I guess to just go into more detail. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I got to be honest, this is this would take a very, very long yeah. time to explain. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'll, I'll do my absolute best to try and explain based on some of the own um, – some of the research that I've done and some of the factors that I think can be put into a, um, into a shorter amount of time. So number one, um, I don't, I'll, I'm going to explain something to your listeners, a concept called patronage. So patronage is essentially a – well, philosophically – 
it's a form, it's like a master servant relationship. And when it comes to self-sustaining your, um, your well-being, so basically being self-sufficient, patronage is the exact opposite. So it literally, it's built into the name. It's the support given by a patron. And it involves a certain amount of power to control appointments or to provide rights to people. But when you are the giver of the rights, that implies a certain sort of power that you will right. always have and that the beneficiary will never have, will never receive. So this has gone on in Latin America since at least the 18th century. The United States learned to break away from that tradition as early as the um, the foundation of our country. Because if you'll, if you'll remember, uh, for your listeners, when we colonized, when the United States colonized this country, the United States, we tried to enslave the Native Americans and the Native Americans said no. So then we tried bringing uh, other pilgrims to the New World to try and do the exact same thing. But these pilgrims said, no, we look the exact same. We're, we are your people. So if we're going to work for you, you need to give me land rights. You need to give me property rights. And you have to give me taxation with representation, not without mm -hmm. representation. Yep. So that, that was the start of something called pluralism. Pluralism basically is the ability to participate in your, uh, in your democracy. Basically, it allows people to um, – to create self-sustaining sources of authority and provides greater means to coexist. That has never really been the case in Latin America and certainly has not been the case in Venezuela. Let me give you a comparative example. So we've only had two real revolutions in this country. We had an American revolution breaking away from the British and then a second one, which was the Civil War, where we tried to keep the Union and uh, defeat the Confederacy when they tried to defend an asinine cause like slavery. In contrast, Venezuela has endured 11 different revolutions and 27 different constitutions. The United States, in contrast, is one of the youngest countries on Earth and has the old, world's oldest constitution. Mm. And it's because... We hold and place faith in our institutions. Yeah. The difference is when you have an authoritarian regime like Venezuela, you place all of your faith not in the foundations of your institutions but on the presidency, which means that the presidency has way more power than it needs and why you will never see a dictatorship in a place like the United States. So already we can rule out that the United States is some sort of dictatorship. It drives me insane as a Venezuelan when I hear that Donald Trump is some sort of authoritarian. But if you, re if, yeah, if you stop and – not even close. If you stop yeah. and think about it, Andrew, we um, – and I'll get to your question in a second. But it's very, very important to point out that difference. If you've noticed, Donald Trump has had to adhere to different institutional norms that curb him from being able to exercise – executive um, executive powers there that's why we have concepts like checks and balances those don't really exist in latin american countries yet although they are working on it and it certainly is not the case in venezuela unfortunately so let's get back to what you were asking you said what what are the factors that led to its collapse well really the 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 first the first one first and foremost is oil 
So, fun fact for your listeners. Venezuela has more oil than anywhere else in the world. We have the world's largest number or amount of proven oil reserves. More than Qatar, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, you name it. So, what ended up happening? Venezuela, over the has depended on oil, basically. And that oil is captured and the revenue is captured by the state oil company, which is PDVSA. So already we had some, um, some, some conceptual understanding of democratic socialism, not the sort of full-fledged socialism that we saw to, uh, that we see today, but to the degree that the state was functioning through the oil that was being, that was flowing and the money that was flowing through oil that was being exported around the world. And that led to public investment and social spending. So public investment includes things like infrastructure projects, um, preferential imports. So people were benefiting from service contracts with the government and basically exchange rates that were artificially inflated. So on the other end, you had social spending, which was to keep and maintain a welfare state. So on the one hand, you had your lower class Venezuelans that were being sustained by the welfare state. And then you had your middle class also benefiting from being involved in, um, in projects with the government or by just keeping healthy relations with the government when they saw the infrastructure projects working, you know, the roads were being paved, buildings were, not, were kept clean, everything was working well. But again, it's because we were so dependent on oil and the oil was getting good. So what ends up happening? What ends up happening is since most of the economy's value flows from the top down, there's that patronage again. You have this dependency relationship between those who capture the oil rents and the clients, meaning the Venezuelans, who consume them. So as long as the, the rent of oil keeps flowing, everyone is happy. You with me so far? Yep. <laughs> so here's what ends up happening. As this is going on, Venezuela goes through this like 40-year period of democratic rule in the, uh, in the late 20th century under this power-sharing agreement where you basically have two parties that are basically like the Republicans and Democrats in Venezuela. They both lean a little bit to the left, but one leans more to the other because Venezuela really hasn't had a um, – although today I guess you can make the argument that they do exist only in like small factions, but we've never really had like a significant major political party that leans to the right. But they did this in order to – um, to make sure that this sort of carousel of dictatorships that we had before would never happen again because we had just gotten finished toppling another dictator like in the 1960s. So while this is going on, there's a power sharing agreement and the spoils of all of the wealth that was coming in from these oil profits were divided along party lines and it was at the expense of larger sectors of Venezuelan society. And so you would think, oh, my gosh, that's corruption. Why didn't anyone put a stop to it? Well, it goes back to what I said before. Because everyone got so used to benefiting from the state, no one complained. They said, yeah. well, you know. It's dangerous. Yeah, exactly. And oil basically was good. Um, everybody benefited in some way. So they said, you know, why am I – yeah, I get it's corrupt. But, you know, everybody is basically benefiting economically. Yes. So Yeah, so it kind of like, it kind of like seemed like it was working at first. And exactly. Then, yeah, then it kind of degraded, I'm guessing. It, exactly. Yeah. And and I'll tell you what happened, Andrew. Once the oil prices eventually dropped because, you know, 
that's how international markets work. You don't control the price of oil. The, the price of oil was largely di- dictated by demand and by price fixing that is done by OPEC. OPEC is the oil oligopoly of countries that basically they're the world's largest oil exporters and they get together and they they basically dictate the price of oil. Venezuela, ironically enough, was one of the main founders of OPEC. So once oil prices eventually dropped and that affects the government programs, because if you remember, the government programs like welfare benefits or whatever, that's all maintained by oil prices. So working class Venezuelans that, that benefited from these programs, they um, – they revolted. They said, okay, well, we weren't they we didn't blame corruption then, but we blame corruption now. Mm-hmm. So everybody basically freaks out and they blame the the two-party system on the consequences of the dried up oil rents. And in comes this guy, Hugo Chavez, this political outsider, and he tries to stage two coups, two different ones, gets put in prison two different times in 1992 and 1994. He gets broken out of prison. And here's the crazy part most people don't know, Andrew. When he gets out of prison the second time, the first stop he makes is to, um, is to the University of Havana where he meets with Fidel Castro. And Fidel Castro basically makes him his protege mm. because at that time, if you remember, like in the 1990s, Cuba was going through a really, really bad time because yeah, they, yeah. They, were, they were depending on the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union falls in 1991, they were like, oh, my God, we don't, we don't produce anything of our own. So we need – we basically need some other country to leech off of. And once Fidel Castro sees Venezuela, sees Hugo Chavez, they said, oh, my God, jackpot. Not only is this guy like a big fan of my work, but Cuba or Caracas is like two hours away from Cuba. So it worked out perfectly. So – he basically gives him the uh, the rundown of how to create the sort of socialist state that we see today, or at least mm-hmm. the the results of the socialist revolution that we see today. Um, he runs on this platform where he says, "Oh well, I'm an outsider. Um, just believe believe in me, and I will solve all of your problems." And the lower class people, because they they saw him as like this sort of savior, uh, this socialist savior, uh, they put his faith in him. And if that sounds familiar in an American context, it's because if they're you, you know this, right, Andrew, like there are certain political figures on the left who hold that exact same personification of, oh, my God, just believe in every nice, sweet thing that I'll say and government oh, will sure. take care of you. For sure. AOC, mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders. And Elon uh, Omar, oh, yeah, all those yeah. types. Exactly. Yeah, I'll care for you in, in return. I just need your support. Or, or they promise things. And, of course, it sounds great on the surface, like free college, um, high minimum wage. All that sounds great, uh, but it has severe underlying consequences uh, for the economy. And that's what people don't consider uh, when they oh, get yeah. support. And, and, and we haven't even gotten to the socialism in action yet because that's <laughs> – that's what I really want your, your listeners to understand because I think it, uh, it does some disservice, and this goes back to why I'm doing this podcast. It does some disservice if, um, if listeners – I know that there are some listeners that want to be able to explain to people why Venezuela is a good example of why socialism doesn't work. So it's very important that you understand exactly some of those examples of what it is that he did that went so wrong. So one of the first things that he did was um, – 
was price controls. So basically what he did is he created – this was after 2002 because there was this coup attempt in 2002 and an oil strike in 2003. And in response, Chavez basically was given like full executive power to do whatever he want and adopt any policies necessary to like cement support and discourage any future insurrection. But he did it through both punishment and reward. He basically said, all right, I was able to defeat this coup attempt. And I'm going to make sure that no one can ever have the power to try and go against my word ever again. So that starts in 2003. He creates this thing called the Commission for the Administration of Currency Exchange. And it's part of this series of economic measures to um, basically outlaw currency exchanges. So here you can go to like a, a travel X or I don't know, maybe like some sort of privately owned institution and you can exchange dollars for, I don't know, euros or Turkish liras or Mexican pesos or whatever the case may be. Right. Mm -hmm. But in Venezuela, in order to make sure that the, the Bolivar that that's our currency was as strong as possible, they created like this, uh, they, they imposed a fixed exchange rate and they put a cap on the maximum purchasing amount that you, of dollars that you can buy. So citizens basically were capped at this rate where you can only get like a few thousand dollars. And then businesses that are related to like prioritized industries like food, medicine, they get better rates. And they get like a higher uh, maximum amount for dollars for, to be able to import stuff like food and medicine. Mm -hmm. But – because you're having to deal with corruption in the government, again, when you when you when all of that power is allocated to the government, you're you're removing the incentive for private companies to produce and you're creating incentives for government officials to receive bribes in order for people to cheat on the on those rules. So basically, like if you're a government connected official or you or if you're a government connected official you have access to a limited amount of cheap dollars. You can just say, well, um, I'm going to go to one of these like commission uh, offices and I'm going to tell them that I'm importing food and medicine, but really I just want to import something that I bought from Italy, like some glass, I don't know, some really, really expensive glass sculpture or painting or whatever the case may be. And if you pay the official, the official will do it for you. They'll just, they'll put a rubber stamp and say, all right, whatever. So it was like it was only people who could actually afford to get that access to government officials. And those, those government officials all were part of the Socialist Party. Mm -hmm. So basically you had to align with the Socialist Party, Chavez's party, to be able to get that access. So already we're seeing signs of patronage, like loyalty. You're buying people's loyalty essentially. Yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, Venezuelans, like regular average Joes without those connections – they're denied applications, and so they have to get dollars outside of the official exchange rate. So what does that do? That creates this parallel black market with exchange rates that are way higher than the fixed exchange rate. So what happened is companies find this loophole that allows for dollar purchases at lower rates that could be sold at a, at a, much, higher, um, at a much higher rate, meaning like – if you uh, – I don't know. That basically means like if you buy, let's say, $100 and that's worth 4,000 Bolivares, you could sell them back into the, into the black market for 10 times that amount or maybe sometimes even 400 times that amount. So people were basically 
grossly enriching themselves mm. um, while all of this was going on. So um, a lot basically like people were taking advantage of this uh, of this loophole because the black market rate was a more accurate estimation of the real price of the dollar and the government friendly importers of food and medicine, which really they weren't doing, they could basically legally exploit it. So as a result, three hundred and fifty billion dollars with a B are siphoned, taken away from the Venezuelan economy through uh, overcharged invoices, fake imports and kickbacks, which are basically bribes for contracts to corrupt officials. Mm. That's only step one of what um, of what that led to. And the end result here, very, very important, Andrew, is that right now over 70 percent of food was being e imported as early as 2013 because, again, they um, they removed the incentive for people to produce. But another reason you might be asking me is, OK, well. Can't people at least try and um, and create stuff for themselves? No, they couldn't. And that goes to the seizing of private property, expropriation. So mm. I've heard your um, I heard your last episode, Andrew, and you said that uh, I forgot what it is that you how it is that you define socialism. But there's one important factor that you forgot to put in there that's really really important for your listeners to understand. One of the most important and key concepts of socialism is the government seizing and controlling the means of production, and that comes with the restriction of private property. The state controls and owns the, produ and owns the production supposedly to provide a better life for citizens because the state knows better. Again, that goes back to this whole idea that government knows best, right? So right, right. Chavez – followed this uh followed this dogma religiously any any um and expropriated private property without any concern in fact if you ask any venezuelan they'll tell you they remember chavez would walk around the streets of caracas and he would point his finger at privately owned family businesses and he would say expropriate it so you've seen you've seen oprah right how she'll tell her audience members you get a car you get a car you get a car so <laughs> what chavez yeah. was saying i'm taking your car i'm taking your car and i'm taking your car and <laughs> mind you we're not talking about like rich multinational corporation owners we're talking about like simple you know farmers bakers gallery shop owners in a mall trying to support their families so small business owners were having their stuff taken away from them their businesses and not just businesses land chavez said the land is not private property anymore land is now social property so he would expropriate things like rice production plants he would expropriate he expropriated the biggest processor plant of food and drinks in venezuela and if you guys still don't doubt or if you guys still doubt that that wasn't socialism, I have two better examples that are proof that it was. Chavez, back in uh, – I can't remember what year this was. This was back in his heyday, back when oil prices were like at its absolute best and he thought he could do whatever he wanted. He called to threaten a bank president on live TV and he said, if the bank isn't for sale, then I can expropriate it immediately if I want to because I can do whatever I want. If the bank didn't want to give these uh, – Hypothecary loans are what they call, which is an economics lesson all in, a, in itself. But the point is the Venezuelan government ended up closing eight banks in 11 days. 
And those calls that he made also were to expropriate rich families to finance the city of Caracas and to uh, finance other um, other government facilities. Because at the end of the day, taking stuff from what they call the bourgeoisie, the the the, the elite. And to give it to the people, it doesn't get any more socialist than that. Chavez was a mm. huge fan of taking over what wasn't his and basically telling the the owners of – the real owners of that property – excuse my French, but basically to piss off. You good? Yeah, yeah we're good. We're good. So, um, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought your audio got off. No, no you're good. I just want to pa- take a pause and make sure you didn't have any questions or are you with me so far? No, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I just thought your audio got off. Oh, no, 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 like, no, no. Oh, crap. No, no. <laughs> and um, look, I can, look, I can even go on even further because it's not just private property that was seized for the revolution. It was core services too. Back in 2007, the government – uh, seized something something called Electricidad de Caracas. This was the uh, the biggest electricity company in Venezuela. The government actually took possession not just of that, but of ten electrical companies in the private sector. And of course, you know, when you give all this power to the government, it it shows what happens. It didn't take much time yeah. for the sector to be in crisis after being under socialist management in two thousand nine. Venezuela was in a big energy crisis with constant energy outages. We're talking like six massive power outages in just two years. And hold on, it doesn't, it it gets even worse. Last year, Venezuela was without electricity for more than six entire days. So imagine that 144 hours without electricity. And each and every time the power outage um, was going on, it's always blamed on somebody else. That's another big takeaway of socialism socialism never takes responsibility for its own shortcomings they will always Mm, find someone else to blame always i see it here in the united states and i especially see it in venezuela and those conditions are still persisting on the ground today they do something called electricity rationings what does that mean it basically means that people on the ground right now have to go sometimes without 12 hours a day without electricity so what does that do? That affects your ability to have perishable food in your fridge. It affects your ability to be able to work. And it affects your ability to have internet access, which, by the way, the, inter- the, the biggest internet company in Venezuela, CanTV, was also expropriated by the state. And guess what the result is, Andrew? We have the l- slowest internet in the Western Hemisphere, worse than Haiti and worse than Cuba. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, just like, and I, and I also want to touch on on um, taking away personal belongings. Um, you kind of already see. Well, this this was this is becoming more of a prominent idea in in our culture in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an article by by Teen Vogue, I believe. Oh god, um, that basically yeah, <laughs> and I don't I'm not even, this just came out of the blue really. But they a writer uh, wrote an article from Teen Vogue, um, and she basically advocated for. Um, the complete abolition of private property. Um, so she basically advocated that that we, as Americans, uh, we don't need to own we don't need to own our own property. Instead, we can all benefit as a society if we all can take each other's stuff. If we can all share mutually uh, our own belongings, and that obviously is is just downright Marxism. It's downright socialism, communism. It's all of it. Um, 
And it's just becoming more and more prominent in our society. And the sad thing is a lot of people are on board with that now uh, in our country. A lot of people don't, like, especially a lot of millennials, uh, kids my age, um, they kind of just see that and they're like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Like, I don't have to work, really. I can just benefit from society as a whole without really doing anything. Um, and so, yeah, just to kind of touch on what you said, that that's, that's what happened in, in Venezuela. And people didn't really have a sense to work uh, because the government uh, took care of them. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. So, which brings me to the final question I have for you today. Um, how, or really, what do young Americans need to know about socialism? Like if you could, if you could pick one or a few things specifically, what do, what do young Americans really need to know about the effects of socialism and what it, what can, what it can do uh, on an economy, what, what it can do uh, for a country in a, in a negative aspect, of course. Well, first and foremost, I want your listeners to know it never works. When I say it never works, let me give you a list of all the countries where socialism has failed. The Soviet Union, Poland, Yugoslavia, Albania, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, East Germany, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, North Korea, Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia, Angola, Ghana, Tanzania, Mozambique, Zambia, and Venezuela. This is an ideology that has never worked because what it does is there is no way to implement a system that implies having to hardwire and reframe our, our way of thinking. It's, it's authoritarian if you think about it. There's no way to effectively implement socialism without changing the wants and needs of the individual. Individuals, it's human nature to want to keep the product of your labor. So there's no way that, in, that you're going to be able to implement this sort of ideology and when it's juxtaposed by a system that has, that has – created the largest net benefit for economic advance and uh, the, the rapid advancement of modern technology in the past century. Countries around the world are being lifted out of poverty because of capitalism. We, again, are the perfect example of why this as an economic system will never work and why philosophically it always leads to ruin. So right. I, would, I would implore your listeners, don't just take it from me. Talk to people who have lived this sort of thing because they will tell you firsthand. It's, you, know, you, can, you can read this Teen Vogue article, but I guarantee you, Andrew, that this, this, uh, whoever the, the, arti the artist, whoever the author was, <laughs> They don't know what it's like to have to get a ticket at 4.30 in the morning and spend six hours in a line to receive government rations or to reach the front of the line and be told that there's nothing left or to be told mm -hmm. that your money is worthless or to be told yeah. that your, whatever land your, your family and your family before you worked so hard to be able to have is one day allowed to be taken from you just because the state decided that that that's fair because it's not uh, for socialism it's not about equality of opportunity it's about equality of outcome and that is a system that will never work in an advanced economy like in the united states 
Yeah, yeah. Kind of to touch on what you just said, like, as Americans, we grew up, and we grew up with, with usually, in a nuclear family, um, and we kind of just have things handed to us. Like, usually, we have a great education. Um, we have, we, we kind of just grow up, and this is the blessing, right, of a capitalistic society, right? We have opportunity in front of us. Um, the only thing is we have to work to get it. You, it doesn't just come to you naturally. You have to apply yourself in your job. Mm-hmm. And if you apply yourself, the opportunity is in front of you and you can be successful. Uh, you can't really do that or that you know, there is no opportunity in a, in a country with socialism because um, everyone is equal and everyone equally relies on the government to provide for them. Um, and that's what people take for granted because uh, – our country is just so beautiful and free market. We have a free market, right? And, and because of that, everyone has opportunity. And that's something a lot of kids my age are taking for granted because um, just selfishness or, or they're just blind to what socialism has done well, uh, to so many countries. I would also add this, Andrew. It's very, very important yeah, also to point ahead. out two things. Number one, going to a point you just made, which is also very important. Number one, um, if you if you notice a lot of Venezuelans and refugees from East European and other countries that were um, that were inundated and inflicted by the ills of socialism, they come to the United States. You, yeah, you sure. very rarely do you see people fleeing capitalist countries to go reside in communist or socialist states. That that never happens. They always come here. And you right. never see them voting for what they fled. It that no ever. Um, and secondly, I think it's also important for uh, for for those of you who are listening. Um, I'm. I really do hope that you understand now that th- that Venezuelans pro- that Venezuela's problems are absolutely econ- from an economic standpoint, at the very least, caused by this socialist Bolivarian revolution. But you got to understand that the people who bought into this idea themselves were not evil. The people who, like this Teen Vogue magazine uh, author, I guarantee you in her case, there are evil intentions behind that. But, they're, but the recipients, the people who fall for these ideologies, I understand why they fall for it. Because like you, like you mentioned before, Andrew, it sounds nice um, and, I, and very idealistic to you know, basically clap, you know, hold hands and sing kumbaya as we, mm-hmm. as we you know, share land with one another. Um, but as the old saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And it's important that we, we collectively, because on our podcast, this is something that we seek to, um, to reiterate time and time again as well. It's not the main focus of our podcast, but it's important that people understand listening to firsthand, um, firsthand accounts of individuals with whom I've spoken, they'll tell you themselves, look, you know, my parents, their parents, and some of their friends, they swallowed the poison pill of socialism. And mm. yeah, they regret it, but they they themselves were not evil. You know, they, they didn't understand what it would come to because they right. th- they were deceived. So I would I would encourage your listeners to do the research and to to be curious and also to do it in this, do it in a way where you're helping 
you're, you're doing it in a way that empathizes with some of the good intentions of these younger generations who fall for socialism. Because I guarantee you that they're not acting like, like Chavez or like Maduro does, where you know they're looking to, to willfully strip people of everything that they have and to put them in a situation like that in Venezuela where 96% of the population is living below the poverty line. I, I don't think that that's what most... Americans or younger Americans who believe in socialism or want socialism, I don't think that's what they want. They just, right. they're being fed the wrong thing. So it's important that, you know, people like you, you know, you have a good platform now, tell them, you know, don't, don't belittle them, don't berate them, but help them understand where they're getting, you know, what it is that they're getting incorrect. And I guarantee you time and time again, they're going to rethink what they, uh, what they originally thought about socialism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And just, and it's, I think it's really important to have like peaceful dialogue with other people that you might not agree with because mm-hmm. I, I see like, and it's on both sides, it's on the left and the right in our country. People just tend to yell at each other Yeah. and there's no really open dialogue. It's just, this is what I think. And if you don't think what I think, then, then you're the bad person and you're stupid and you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important that we, that we just really accurately show the impact socialism has had on other countries without uh, getting angry at people that, that don't necessarily agree with us. Um, and that's kind of, I mean, I'm not perfect at that, but, and it's, I think that's just really important just to have open dialogue with other people that you might not agree with. Um, so I guess, I guess that that's all my questions for you. Um, again, I, I thank you. I really thank you for, for coming on to this, onto the podcast and really just, just talk, just speaking your mind. Um, that's, that's just something we need more. We need more people that, that aren't afraid to really just show the truth and to really, uh, just advocate for freedom, for opportunity, for, for everything that America stands for. So, mm-hmm. so what happens in Venezuela doesn't happen here. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm just really grateful for what you're doing uh, with your podcast. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, so thank, thank you for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, one last thing to your listeners. If, um, if you want to learn more or you want to ask me any questions, um, I think my dog is freaking out on me. So if, <laughs> if, if you're listening, don't, don't mind the dog. <laughs> yeah, I can hear Yeah, I have a little Maltese and he's, uh, he, he's, he's a feisty one anytime we have anybody at the door. But anyways, if, <laughs> if your listeners do want to keep up with what's going on in Venezuela, uh, it's really a fascinating tale in and of itself. Like I said before, it's not just the, uh, the problem that we have with socialism. Although it's a major component of it, we also talk about other problems that uh, Venezuela is facing right now where the regime, for example, is uh, illegally gold mining um, a, a strip of land that's bigger than the entire state of Ohio because Venezuela has as many natural resources and gold and silver as the entire continent of Africa. So we're having mm-hmm. to deal with that. We're having to deal with basically like narcos, but in Venezuela where the, the – the military is involved in facilitating drug trafficking. We're having to do with other uh, state actors like Russia, Iran, China, and Turkey that are looking to counter U.S. influence by legitimizing these efforts to suppress the Venezuelan people. Uh, so, yeah, it's transnational organized crime, this, this, rep- this repressive apparatus, a lot of stuff going on in Venezuela that, um, that go beyond the socialism, although that's a big thing as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I would highly encourage you guys if you want to learn more because, you know, Iran, Russia, China, they're always in the news. But, you know, they're actively working in Venezuela, you know, just right. a couple of miles away. Um, mm. 
feel free to check out our podcast. That's the state of Venezuela. And if you have any questions for me specifically, you can reach me at the state of Venezuela or no state of Venezuela at gmail.com. So I, I look forward to you guys uh, checking us out as well. And be sure to, of course, keep checking out your podcast. I think you are also doing a very, very commendable job in trying to get yeah, your gen- you, younger generations to really learn the truth about what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, check out his podcast, the state of Venezuela on Apple. Uh, is it on Spotify? Do you have it on Spotify? Uh, yes. We're on, we're on all major platforms. Uh, we're, we're launched or we launch our episodes through Podbean, but we're on all the major outlets. So Apple okay. podcasts, Spotify, the works. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Check out his podcast again. Uh, if you guys have any questions or any feedback, uh, contact me on keep our rights on Instagram. Um, and yeah, so, so thank you again, Raphael for, for coming on and, and, uh, we will see you guys in the next episode.